This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Today we'll talk with Scott Stossel about his forthcoming book, My Age of Anxiety. Then PW Co-Editorial Director Jim Milliot will discuss the year's top-selling books and some exciting new startups. Usually we would start with a sneak peek at the Publishers Weekly bestseller list mm-hmm. for next week, which is powered by Nielsen Bookscan, but we just got in the Nielsen numbers, and there's basically nothing new. There are no debuts on fiction or nonfiction this list until you you really have to get down to uh, right. like the 40s before you find a book, um, right. which is just because you know this is a this has been a kind of dead week. It's yeah. the start of a new year. Um, they figure that between Christmas and New Year's, basically no one's going to buy a book, and so nobody launches anything mm-hmm. big. Um, so keep an eye out for next week's list because January 7th we've got a whole bunch of interesting books coming out, including. Yeah. Scott Stossel's book uh, and Wendy Lesser's book, who we right. interviewed on our on our last show. So uh, I think next next week's list is going to be the one to keep an eye out for. And instead, Mark, I wanted to ask you, um, since it is the start of a new year, whether you have any thoughts on what you would like to see in nonfiction in 2014. You know, I, I I handle a lot of categories, and and probably one of my biggest ones is memoir. And I and I see how memoir has changed, has evolved. Uh, I see what makes memoir work um, in, in a in a populist way. I mean, there are many different types of memoir: light, uh, humorous, uh, and then there are some like uh, our uh, who our guest on today's show, Scott Stossel, My Age of Anxiety. Uh, how uh, he uses his own anxiety as a jumping off point for. Uh, a, a search into anxiety. And, and I'm looking forward to seeing many of those uh, memoirs that, that talk about the personal, the first person, but also use it to bring it to a larger, general, more investigative uh, kind of piece. So I, I'm always happy to see some of those. So something that's sort of a, a hybrid format where it's not purely academic, but it's not purely personal. It's a it's a blend of the two. Right, exactly, exactly, yeah. And, and I think um, I, I think they make for that, that kind of approach makes for a great memoir that that takes it beyond. I mean, of course, there's different people read memoirs for different reasons, whether it's celebrity or, or some people just want to laugh. Um, but I think I think there's there's uh, I, I look forward to seeing I want to say more literary memoirs. <laughs> so, and and what about you, Rose? Well, on the fiction side, um, I handle a lot of the genre fiction, as you know, and what I would like to see in 2014 is more risk-taking. I would like to see more authors taking risks, um, really pushing themselves, stretching themselves. I'd like to see uh, authors who are coming from a a majority perspective, like, for example, white people, men, straight people, um, really being willing to, to risk the possibility of getting things wrong and writing from perspectives that are not their own. Mm. And, uh, 
I, w I would love to see more main characters of color on the romance side. I'd love to see more queer romance, more interracial romance, uh, really more people uh, taking risks, having adventures. And because I feel like when authors do that in, in a really free and and freed way um, they just have so much fun with it sure. and and that makes for a great book you know, it, that sense of of joy and exuberance can really make a narrative you can tell when you're reading a book and the authors had fun with it um, and it might not even be the best writing that you've you've ever read the most polished or uh, the 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 most experienced it might not be someone with 20 books under their belt but this is what makes so many debuts so exciting is sure you're, you're seeing someone really write from that place of of joy and excitement and passion and i'd love to see publishers taking chances on these books too because without publisher support uh, you know adventurous books can't succeed and and when we talk about as you said maybe romance so many of us think that well how can there be any movement or, or any experimentation in romance because it seems like such a a formulaic or, or tried and true uh with with uh, certain readers in mind but you're right when we do have debut uh writers come out in the field that's a chance for them to to, to writers to really break bounds uh, and discover new ways of uh, presenting characters. And I, th I think we'll also see um, a more blurring, and this has been going on for a while, but more blurring of the line between what's genre and what's literary. Mm. And if you ask Nicholas Sparks whether he writes romance, he says, no, he writes literary fiction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, he writes romance. You know, let, let's, let's be honest with right, ourselves right. here. He writes romance novels. Right. Uh, or if you look at someone like Nora Roberts, uh, for, for whom the award category at the Rita's was basically created of, of fiction with romantic elements uh, because you know maybe it's not strictly a right, romance right, novel right. Um, but it, it's really it's it's written for the same readers and it, it appeals in the same way and so I'd love to see more literary publishers taking chances on genre fiction and and being willing to put it out and say yes this is romance yes this is horror yes this is fantasy this is science fiction this is you know a thriller but it's also you know it it's also literary and right. and talking about how genre doesn't necessarily mean formulaic mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean trite uh, or predictable that you can have something that is unabashedly genre and also really exciting and new and written very well right. uh, and to see mainstream publishers give it the the mainstream seal of approval would be very exciting all sounds wonderful and this is the great thing about working in publishing is as we often see these changes and it's true and publishing can move faster than we think i well i'll, I'll be very <laughs> excited to see what 2014 has in store for yeah. us and we'll be looking at the bestseller list still uh Every week to see what what goes on, but but more importantly, I think we'll you know we we also dig deeper into what what books are moving, even if they aren't bestsellers. You know, mm -hmm. books are hot out there. Yeah, so. so that's definitely something to look forward to this year. Exactly. I'm Rose Fox, and I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Scott Stossel will tell us about his deep dive into the world of anxiety. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Scott Stossel on the line. He's the author of My Age of Anxiety, Fear, Hope, Dread, and the Search for Peace of Mind. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about your book. What gave you the idea to write about anxiety, and where did that idea take you? Well, I, I've always been interested in um, psychology and intellectual history going back years and years. So it's 
um, that, that's sort of the, the, the general context in which the idea occurred to me. But the specific one was I've also, uh, as I recount in the book, had lifelong um, struggles with anxiety myself. And specifically what prompted it, ironically enough, was about 10 years ago, or actually exactly 10 years ago, uh, I published my first book. And in the run-up to the launch of the book, there was going to be kind of a modest book tour that involved some uh, public TV appearances and big lectures and uh, major events, and I got acutely, acutely anxious about the public speaking component um, of this, which has always been uh, kind of an abiding anxiety of mine. But uh, it, my my fear was such that I, you know, I was already in psychotherapy, was already being medicated. But I thought I've got to come up with something, so I actually called uh, the Boston University Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders um, to see if I could get set up with a course of sort of emergency, what's called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is what they specialize in, try to, to try to control my um, performance anxiety. And as I was sort of in the process of trying to sign up, I, I think I actually told them, you know, this is something I might think about writing about. And I think it was sort of a half-baked idea at the time. Partly I was just trying to get in more quickly so that they could treat me, you know, <laughs> in time. I think they said there was a six-week waiting period and I didn't have six weeks. But actually that was the moment at which the idea was sort of caught hold and I realized, you know, this is something that was very, very interesting to me. And so I spent, you know, much of the next, uh, you know, many years sort of researching and then, and then eventually uh, reporting and writing the book. And, of course, the irony is, you know, I was prompted, you know, by my uh, you know, anxiety over a book tour to write a book at, about anxiety, which I've succeeded in doing with, for which I'm now rewarded with another book tour. <laughs> and, and looks what looks to be lots more public appearances. Yeah, uh, so we'll, we'll 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 see how it goes. Well, well, tell us what did you learn about anxiety that that surprised you besides your own. I mean, I, 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 there's so much. I mean, uh, and I cover a lot of ground. Everything from the um, sort of cutting-edge scientific discoveries to uh, how different historical eras have thought about it. But a couple of things that were most interesting to me, I mean, one is historical, and it's just, uh, as you read back through the literature of a lot of thinkers and writers, including, you know, in particular thinkers and writers about anxiety, including people like Charles Darwin and Sigmund Freud and William James, you know, they themselves uh, often suffered from acute anxiety, which was partly what motivated them to try to you know, develop their new theories of mind and to do their research on um, their, their their different areas. And so what I found, and again and again, reading back through, you know, going back literally millennia, is that you'll find descriptions, you know, from the 4th century B.C. or the 2nd century B.C. or, you know, the, the 18th century British intellectuals talking about, you know, what would today be clearly diagnosable as a, you know, generalized anxiety disorder or a panic attack or social phobia. So it was sort of consoling and, and reassuring to see that this is something that is kind of endemic to the human condition and that, you know, plenty of people far greater than I have, have, have suffered with it too. And I found that kind of a source of not only great interest and, and consolation. Um, on the you know, forward-looking part of it, a lot of the, the cutting-edge science um, and neuroscience and kind of molecular genetics, um, anxiety is one of these areas where, for various reasons, you know, they're making great leaps and bounds. I mean, there's still tons that is not understood, but in sort of starting to discover what the actual underlying you know, neurophysiological, neurochemical mechanisms of different you know, of anxiety, but also other emotions. What are the brain structures uh, associated with um, different levels of anxiety? What does mindfulness meditation do to, uh, you know, your amygdala, which is kind of the 
part of your brain that's the seat of the fear response, and what does it do to the neocortex? So it was just sort of fascinating to me, you know, because they're making such leaps and bounds uh, of, of, of progress with you know, fMRI technology where you can actually look at your brain in a scanner and see what it looks like when it's experiencing different emotions, um, suddenly we're, we're you know, understanding the relationship between brain and mind a lot more. Um, so all, all that was very, very interesting to me. Although it's also clear, you know, as, as great as our expansion and understanding is, you know, we, we still are kind of groping around in the dark as to really understand, you know, how does the mind, you know, create itself or an emotion or a, a fearful thought. Well, you know, anxiety did not exist as a diagnosis a half century ago, even in our own lifetime, uh, years of mine say, that um, what what is its history? Well, so going back I mean, to, to your point there, the you know anxiety disorders, which have been around since the third edition of uh, the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, sort of the Bible of the psychiatric and you know, um, uh, psychotherapy industry, there, there was no such thing as an anxiety disorder before 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, that was the third edition, and that edition there had been a fight in the years leading up to that. The previous edition, the second edition, had come out in 1968 and had been completely dominated by Freudian psychoanalytic theory. And so you had all kinds of things like neuroses and um, psychoneuroses, but not, nothing that was anxiety per se. There was a battle fought between the biological psychiatrists and the Freudians during that period, and, and basically the biological psychiatrists won, and they tried to come up with when they came up with the disease categories in the DSM-3, they tried to be much more symptom-based and less about, you know, what's the cause of it? Was it, you know, that you have an edible complex and you want to have sex with your mother? Um, and so that that's the point at which the anxiety disorders per se uh, came into existence. And then, you know, since then we've sort of studied them as, as such. But, I mean, a lot of these, disease, you know, for instance, panic disorder was first invented um, I mean, literally invented uh, with the 1980 publication of of the DSM. And it's interesting because, you know, everyone today, you know, plenty of people, millions of Americans are are diagnosed with panic disorder. Everybody knows what a panic attack is, even if they haven't experienced one, because it's part of the lingua franca, you know, Tony Soprano had them. Right. Um, And yet you go back to, uh, you know, the 1960s and 70s, and there there, there was just no such thing. No one talked about them. It used to be known as anxiety neurosis. And basically what happened was in the early 1960s, there was research on a drug called imipramine, which is one of the early tricyclic uh, antidepressants. And there was a doctor named Dr. Donald Klein who was sort of experimenting, giving this drug kind of willy-nilly to a whole bunch of his patients. And what he found was that it didn't cure their kind of chronic worry, and it didn't cure things like psychosis, schizophrenia, but it did uh, cause them to stop having these paroxysmal uh, anxiety attacks. So we realized that you know, we, ever since Freud, everyone had thought about anxiety sort of on a spectrum and that, you know, acute anxiety leads to schizophrenia and psychosis and milder anxieties and neurosis. And he realized, no, here's something that's different in kind. This is panic anxiety. And so that, he, he achieved what's known as the first pharmacological dissection. That is to say, he came, you know, he, 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 there was a drug, he used the drug, and he worked backwards from that to invent something called panic disorder. And that's not to say that it didn't exist in nature, that people weren't um, experiencing these things. As I say, you know, in the second century AD, you have, or the fourth century, you have Hippocrates describing people having what are evidently panic attacks, but there was no no word for it. Um, and, and then going back a little bit further through the century, I mean, Freud talked a lot about anxiety as kind of an underlying cause of a lot of other kind of psychopathologies, but he changed his mind multiple times over his career about what it was, what caused it, was it a biological problem, was it a repressed sexual impulses thing, was it sort of the 
atrophied remnants of some kind of evolutionary fight or flight response. That he was closest to being accurate on 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 that theory, by the way. But really, aside from Freud, until you get to the mid century, um, there's very little literature on anxiety per se. Um, um, you know, it really wasn't until the 50s, 60s, 70s, and then 80s you have the benzodiazepines, anti-anxiety medication coming online that anxiety really became um, you know an object of 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 study. And you know, going back way back, the things like anxiety and depression tend to get grouped lumps together under umbrellas like melancholia or hysteria or the vapors, things like that. And when you were researching the anxiety of historical figures, you mentioned Charles Darwin. Um, how, how did you go about doing that? And if, since they weren't writing about it using the terminology that we use today? Well, they do. They, and they will occasionally use the term. I mean, there's a, I have a epigraph in the book where, you know, Emma Darwin, his wife, is writing to her friend, and she says, you know, Charles is much given to anxiety, as you know. Um, I mean, a lot of it I came across sort of haphazardly. I basically started reading through, um, I mean, a great sort of starting secondary source for me was one of the first modern books written about anxiety was a book published in 1950 called The Meaning of Anxiety by Rollo May, who was a kind of an existential psychotherapist. And he had read through kind of the intellectual history of, um, you know, everything up to that point, which included a lot of the writings by existential enlightenment philosophers. So I sort of followed that trail back into history, and then um, I basically was just reading everything I could get my hands on and sort of following the trail, and that was both, you know, going back and reading um, works from the, you know, see, 1800s by, you know, British physicians talking about, there's a great book uh, called The English uh, Malady by a book named, by a physician named George Cheney, who himself suffered from it, and he talked about how how epidemic, uh, uh, you know, what he called um, uh, the English disease was back then, by which he really meant sort of stress and anxiety. Um, And then I would, you know, obviously there's new papers being published all the time in the scientific literature, so I would have sort of a Google alerts and subscribe to various newsletters that would be serving this all up to me. So it was kind of haphazard, but it was one of those things where, you know, I I read around enough that after a while I would start coming across the same, you know, like, oh, I'd be discovering things that I already knew, and that's always that point. You know, when you're researching a book or a, or an article, where okay, I'm, you're starting to feel like maybe you have a handle on the material because you're covering your tracks again. And you talk about your own anxiety too. There's a big autobiographical component to the book, um, as you mentioned earlier. So, how was your anxiety during the writing of the book? Did did it sort of feed on itself? Did writing about this make it better? Did it trigger you? Yes, to all the above. <laughs> um, uh, there were. Um, when the writing, I mean, you know, you guys are writers too, so you know how when 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 the writing is going well and you're feeling good about it, and, and you know, there's nothing more sort of soul satisfying than that. When it's going poorly, um, and you are sort of have written yourself into a corner and you don't know how to get out, there's no worse feeling. And I think that was all compounded because of the subject I was writing about, and it was wrapped up with um, you know complicated ambivalent emotions about whether even to you know, in publishing this and sort of coming out is struggling with these anxiety issues. Um, I mean, for me, the way, you know, some people have asked me, like, well, how did you, um, you know, how were you able to get yourself to do that? And partly it was because when you're sitting alone in your room writing, you know, half the time, you, you sort of have an imagined audience in mind, but I was so in doubt that this book would ever get published because I was late and it was taking me forever that I could sort of write it. It just, it just it was sort of unimaginable to me that, um, these things that I was writing in, you know, my little attic were actually going to be read by the world at large. And I think if I had gotten fixated on that, I would never have finished it. I just sort of focused on, okay, I got to finish this. And now that it's, you know, coming out, I actually have to reckon with the fact that, you know, I say all these, um, 
things about my personal struggles with anxiety, including some, you know, personal, uh, personally embarrassing and I hope, you know, humorous episodes, mm-hmm. but that, um, you know, I'm a little ambivalent about exposing, but um, I decided, you know, um, I'm going all in, might as well put it all in there. Sure. And did writing this book offer you any kind of peace of mind, say, in reference to your subtitle? Yeah, I mean, like I said, there were moments when, well, those moments of identification and recognition when I would, um, you know, again and again, I would realize, you know, there are millions and millions of people today who who suffer from this, and there are millions of, you know, great minds from back through history who who wrestled with similar things, and I found that to be consoling and to provide some some peace of mind. Um, the act of simply finishing, the, you know, there, there were points at which, you know, I'd embarked in this big book on anxiety and where I talk about, you know, sort of my self-doubt. And, um, you know, I was on the verge of not being able to finish it. And I thought, well, this will be, you know, confirmation of my sort of anxious ineptitude. So, so merely, you know, fit, completing the book was a great act of um, self-advocacy. And obviously with all books, there are things that I wish I'd done better or slightly differently or had more time to bake more fully, but, you know, finishing it um, did, did, uh, you know, provide some measure of of, of pleasure and and relief from anxiety. Um, But uh, jury's still out on whether, you know, overall this has been an anxiety reducing or producing experience. And anxiety and fear can certainly be paralyzing, but there are also books out there like The Gift of Fear that talk about the beneficial aspects. Um, have you ever experienced something like that? Absolutely not. I talk uh, you know, at some length in the book about that. I mean, it, it, it just a couple related thoughts, I guess. I mean, one is there's this famous study uh, from 1908 by a couple of Harvard psychologists named Yerkes and Dodson who basically plotted, you know, a bell curve, and um, it's, it's sort of the Goldilocks theory of anxiety, and that if you're, so if you picture along the uh, horizontal axis is your level of anxiety, so if you're far out along the right, you're super, super anxious, and if you're on the left, you're not anxious enough, and then if you plot quality of performance, effectiveness of performance on the vertical axis, so if you're too far out on the right side where you're super anxious, your performance is impaired because you're too anxious to function properly, but if you're too far on the left, on the on the non-anxious side, you'll also perform poorly. It's the, the, the peak of the kind of bell curve is a moderate level of anxiety because basically if you're not, if your adrenaline's not pumping, if you're not engaged, you won't perform as well. So some some level of anxiety is, is adaptive and, and productive, and that always goes with the you know, proviso that as long as it's not, you know, extreme anxiety. Anxiety is good. Anxiety is an evolutionarily adaptive trait that keeps the species alive. Um, you know, mm-hmm. if we weren't anxious, we all would have, you know, fallen off cliffs or done right. stupid, stupid things. And, and, you know, the other thing is I, I talk uh, in the book about, you know, there are, it may be that anxiety is sort of the, 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 the bad parts of anxiety are the flip side of what some of the good traits that may come with it. Um, you, Certain uh, you know neurogeneticists talk about there's there's a, a warrior warrior gene, um, and if you're equipped with the warrior gene, um, you know you're you thrive under pressure when you're under attack. You're at war. You're a quarterback. You know with thousands of pounds of linebackers bearing down on you, and you'll you'll function optimally in that situation. Someone who's very nervous might not. Except the warriors are actually will function optimally in situations where they're not you know, actively under threat, but they're very good at avoiding um, 
bad consequences because they are very effective at sort of scanning the horizon, whether that's literally the physical horizon or just the future. I mean, the best lawyers, you know, some therapists would tell me are, you know, suffer from anxiety because they're very good at worrying about every conceivable eventual bad outcome and guarding against those. Um, and, it, you know, there's evidence, too, that particularly for people who have uh, various forms of social anxiety, it's the same thing that makes you socially anxious is tied into equipment um, that gives you very sensitive social antennae, and those antennae, um, you know, can be very good at helping people to diffuse conflict, how to read situations, even how to how to manage people. And there's a, there's one set of studies that I was you know quite drawn to, being an anxious person myself. Um, Stephen Swomey, who has done a lot of research with um, rhesus monkeys um, over many years, basically they can you know breed different strains of monkeys, some who are super anxious and some who are non-anxious. And if you take the super anxious monkeys, you know, they had anxious parents and those anxious genes got passed on to them, and then you take those monkeys and give them to non-anxious parents, they grow up to be much less anxious than their genetic siblings. And in fact, many of them grow up to become kind of like alpha males of the troop and leaders. And it's sort of like you know, having being equipped with the right amount of you know an anxious temperament, but with a calm, nurturing mother you know, can create an optimal outcome. You know, the suboptimal outcome is if you, you're born to an anxious mother who behaves anxiously and then you grow up to be kind of an anxious wreck. <laughs> now, your, your previous book, Sarge, The Life and Times of Sergeant Shriver, about the founder of the Peace Corps and the Special Olympics, came out, as you said, 10 years ago, 2004, and, and, and the one that kind of started uh, the, the research on this book. This book, you know, that book must have been a very different one to write than this one. Yeah, I mean, that, and that, it was, it was, in a lot of ways... Easier. I mean, there are aspects of it that were harder, um, but with a biography, um, you always, you know, not that I wouldn't get stuck in a chapter and figure out what to do, you know, I did, you know, plenty of self-revising, but if ever I sort of didn't know um, what I should be writing next, you just, it, it's a chronological biography. What happened the next day? What happened the next month? What happened the next year? And obviously you have to be still thinking about shifts in tone and you're dealing with, you know, multiple parallel um, storylines, and you have to figure out how to weave those through. But fundamentally, the, the 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 basic narrative momentum of the book was was clear. Whereas with this new one, um, you know, since it's just a mixture of uh, memoir and science and history, and you know, I had a very hard time figuring out. I ended up I ended up putting much more of myself into the book than I intended. And it's interesting. You know, some people sort of are reading it more as a memoir. Obviously, there's a lot of memoirish material in there, but that I, I sort of tried to use myself as the kind of a unifying strand that ties all these disparate a aspects of anxiety that I explore together in the book. And so it was much more of a, you know, having to figure out what, you know, it had to kind of create its own momentum um, and, and ideas had to build on other ideas. Whereas writing a biography is just, you know, what happened in 1964, what happened in 1965. Um, and, and, you know, one uh, additional challenge with that book was I was dealing with you know, a, a then still living person who had a very powerful, still living family who had very definite views about you know what should and should not be said. So that that was an anxiety-producing episode toward the end stages of that book that I did not have to deal with in this book. Although actually, now that I think about it, I did. The difference in this case was that it was my own family um, that was objecting to uh, you know various portrayals of um, you know themselves as kind of secondary characters in, in the memoirs sections. <laughs> that's always tough, the secondary characters. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's a, yeah. And, 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 and I mean, again, I understand that the, so there was some hairy moments um, with, you know, my mother, father, sister, um, uh, where, you know, I, I did make some changes at their, their behest. Um, 
uh, you know, I got lots of, my mother is a warrior. I, I clearly got, you know, the, my anxious temperament from the maternal side of the family. And, you know, there was some days when I would get 37 voicemail messages with her, um, you know, about this one thing on page 337. Um, <laughs> you, and she's also a stickler for accuracy. And she'll say, like, you went to nursery school in the afternoon, not in the morning. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> so, um, Family is very anxiety-provoking for a lot of people. So uh, before we wind this up, I was wondering, you know, most folks are just coming off of family time with the holidays and uh, a lot of anxiety there. Do you have any advice, um, either either from your research or from your personal experience, for kind of setting that anxiety aside and getting back to daily life? Yeah, I mean, obviously, this this time of year is can be you know, family gatherings can be incredibly anxiety-provoking. I mean, you know, the the what what uh, you can get a dozen different people telling you a dozen different things, but, you know, make sure um, to carve out time for yourself. Uh, you know, a lot of people recommend, I, you know, I'm not a practiced meditator myself, but if you take time out a couple times a day to, um, you know, just do deep breathing and think relaxing thoughts, exercise, 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 you know, this in, in my own life and in all of the scientific literature and in the historical literature going back 500 years, um, regular exercise, you know, just does wonders, not only for your physical health, but for your mental health. You know, that's, that, that's true of, de- of, of depression um, as well. And, you know, try to cultivate an option. Op- it's easier said than done, but, you know, try to, um, you know, express gratitude for the things that you are happy about and, you know, cultivate an optimistic attitude. You know, the, 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 there's a trait that Psychiatrists and psychologists and people in the mental health field now talk about a lot called resilience, and um, you know that resilience is sort of the, the personality trait that makes you most resistant to breaking down under stress, into depression and anxiety, and that are most able to make you recover from it. And you know, there's a lot of evidence that resilience is kind of woven into the genes. You're kind of hardwired to be resilient or not, but it's definitely something that you can learn um, and can practice, you know, train yourself to be better at. So. Um, be resilient is the two-word answer. It sounds like a good one. Well, we've been talking with Scott Stossel. You'll be able to find his book, My Age of Anxiety, in stores on January 7th. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW co-editorial director Jim Milliot takes a look at the year and numbers, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. Today, PW's co-editorial director, Jim Milliot, is here to talk about the year-end numbers just released by Nielsen BookScan. Hello, Jim. Hey, guys. How are you? You're doing very well. Thank you. So what, what story do these numbers have to tell us? Well, they tell uh, you know a pretty good story considering all the um, concerns people had over you know how uh, physical books going to fare in this digital world. Um, because what Nielsen does, as people should know, is just the print side of things. Mm-hmm. So what we found was through uh, outlets that report to uh, the book scan, uh, units were down about two point two percent. Um, and then, if you, you if you think about the fact that a lot of ebooks were sold, I think when all the numbers are totaled, you'll see that sales are probably up in the year. That's great. Yeah, I think it's going to be encouraging to everybody. And also, looking back at uh, 2012, people remember how well um, 
the Fifty Shades and Hunger Games trilogies had done. So the fact that um, the industry could overcome those those big sales without a blockbuster of the magnitude of that size, you know, is pretty encouraging. And if you look a little deeper at the numbers, you can see what the effect was. And um, adult fiction was down about 11 percent, and that's really the the main category that was off. And that reflects two things. It reflects the strength of Fifty Shades in 2012, as well as what has been, you know, one of the dominant trends in the market since ebooks became a major force, in that where they're really uh, taking share away from print uh, is in the adult fiction side. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So really, Fifty Shades was just a, a spike, and now we're back at, at relatively normal levels. Yeah, I think that that's what we're saying. Uh, saying, and you can also we look at this in another way too, um, and, and sales by format uh, in terms of in the print world, and you know mass market paperback again, as most people in the industry know, is taking the roughest hits, and there the, the Nielsen numbers show that sales of mass market paperback are down about nine percent uh, in 2013, whereas you know hardcover is about flat. And trade paper was down about three percent. Right. So yeah, again, that that would that would bolster your theory that the rest of it is being made up in ebooks because that seems to be where where all of those folks are going. You know, why spend six ninety nine or seven ninety nine on a mass market paperback when you could spend two ninety nine and get the same book on your Kindle? Right. Yeah. Especially in the genres, as you well know. Um, and I, I don't think anybody in the industry will, will find any of these numbers really surprising. And like I said, I think and fact, they'll find them a bit heartening. And one of the real um, surprises, the only real surprise maybe, would be in the juvenile fiction where, as we mentioned, The Hunger Games did so well in, in 2012. And in 2013, it looks like uh, the category came about flat. So uh, so that's pretty well. And we can point to uh, one book in particular that did, uh, did very well in the year and helped uh, offset a lot of uh, The Hunger Games. It was hard luck. Um, you know, the Jeff Kinney, uh, I believe it's number eight in Wimpy Kid, right. which oh, was right. the biggest, which was the biggest seller last year. And we have a number for that: yes. one point eight million in. Uh, um, that's just print, and that's just in uh, uh, outlets that that report to uh, the Bookscan. And Bookscan thinks they get about eighty percent of the print market. That's amazing. And I, I remember Rose and I did have uh, Jeff on our show, and he still works uh, his uh, computer gig in Massachusetts. And we both mentioned that we we thought it might be safe at this point to quit his day job, but he, he thought otherwise. He, he's, not, he's not ready to yet. <laughs> he could do okay being an author. Yeah. We're looking um, at some of the other top 20 books. We look at this a couple of different ways. One is just Nielsen Book Scan, um, which is a top 20 um, print, you know, print books, uh, adult and um, children's. And I'm just looking uh, the third wheel, uh, the, the seventh, I believe, in the Wimpy Kid uh, saga, was uh, the number nine. Uh, seller in the year, and that's that's probably the mass market edition. Um, but uh, hard luck was uh, was hardcover, so um, 
you know, pretty strong. Uh, some of the other top sellers uh, in the year, uh, at least on the Nielsen side, uh, Inferno came in at number two. That's the Dan Brown book. Yeah, one point mm-hmm. four million. No surprise. Um, Killing Jesus um, by Bill O'Reilly. Uh, one point one. And rounding at the top five, we have Proof of Heaven and House of Hades. Uh, both sold over nine hundred thousand copies. Yeah, so these these are books that people are going to be mostly familiar with if they've been listening to our bestseller segments every week. You know, obviously, they're books that we've been talking about a lot, um, and and no surprise to see that they've done so well consistently over the year. Right. Yeah, they've. Uh they have done well. And um, a couple other books that are in the top 20 for the year come from the Robertson family of Stuck Dynasty fame. Yep. And uh, Happy, 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 which uh, is by Phil and drew some uh, controversy uh, late last year, uh, came in at number 10. And Psychology, which I believe started at all, was uh, number 19 on the, on the Nielsen list. Wow. And we can compare that a little bit with, um, because we don't have uh, an aggregated uh, bestseller list of ebooks. we take a look at the Amazon uh, Kindle numbers, or not numbers, they're, they're ranking. Mm-hmm. And uh, Inferno uh, was number one for Amazon uh, Kindle last year, uh, followed by Divergent. Gone Girl, uh, Julian Flynn's uh, mm-hmm. novel of almost uh, two, two or three years, I believe. Uh, Sycamore Row was four, and The Husband's Secret by, uh, let's see, Rene Morality was number five. Right, so so some of those are books that have been around for a while, but for Inferno to be on the, the, the hardcover bestseller list uh, pretty consistently, and also on the Kindle list, suggests that Dan Brown is doing pretty well for himself. Yeah, that, that's the, I don't think there's any uh, any debate about that. And Divergent, you know, number mm-hmm. two in Kindle, and was number six on uh, on the Nielsen list. So they're another uh, strong one-two punch. But if, you know, and just something else, not that we need more verification for this, but if you look at the Amazon Kindle list, I will look here, and there is, I don't think, any nonfiction mm-hmm. on the top 20. Yeah. Um, really? So, uh, yep, there, there's, not, there's not, not, a, not a one. So, um, so this is telling us that I, people are preferring to read uh, fiction on a Kindle rather than nonfiction. Right, yeah, and again, that squares with everything you know we've heard again since ebooks have come on on the scene. And one of the more uh, interesting things on the Amazon Kindle list is that you know they these would include self-published titles, and you know we know a lot of self-published books have done pretty well in ebook, mm-hmm. but only one. Um, cracked the top 20, and that was Hopeless by uh, Colleen Hoover. Mm-hmm. Which I want to say has been picked up by a, a traditional publisher since then. Uh, could have, yeah, because this is just, uh, like I said, this is just the ebook right. side of things. Well, that's very exciting, and um, good good to know that there is still fiction out there that can sell in the, the multiple millions of units. You know, let let that be a reminder to anyone who says the people have stopped reading. Yeah, no, we're 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 still reading plenty. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, like I said, I think all around uh, industry members will be uh, pretty heartened by uh, by these results. And Jim, as this is the beginning of the world, uh, the uh, beginning of the world, the beginning of the year, you had uh, mentioned we've got some some interesting startups. Yeah, well, what we've done is, um, you know, I think it was uh, Judith Kerr, the publisher of Atrius, said on a panel, uh, I think earlier in uh, 2013, about, you know, for an industry that's supposedly dying, there's an awful lot of uh, entrepreneurs who are, you know, getting involved in, in publishing. And I, I know uh, folks at the magazine, we've been covering um, startups left and right <laughs> for the last two or three years. So we took a look at, you know, how some of them, uh, you know, over 30 of these uh, have been doing in uh, in recent, uh, recent year, or at least months. And we found that almost all of them are still operating, which uh, we thought was good news, although um, a number of them have, you know, kind of tweaked their business model and um, might have started to do one thing and then in the terms of the great digital startups made a pivot um, and uh, are doing some other things. So uh, again, it's, it's I, I think it's in some ways, you know, almost uh, a compliment to um, uh, book publishing that so many people think uh, you know, it's enough of a ongoing business that if we can just tweak it a little or, or, or find some things that we can make um, better, we can, you know, find a niche in this digital age. What's one uh, that caught your attention, either for better or for worse? Um, you know, that's hard to say. I mean, what you really find is that and one reason we did look at this, among all the startups we looked at, not that many have really, what you could say, moved the needle. Um, again, it kind of goes back to a lot of uh, stuff you read in the mainstream press and what some analysts are always saying about, you know, how traditional publishers are, um, you know, in danger. But then you look at all these startups and all of them have a lot of them are some niches but none of them have um you know oh, yeah. generated really huge sales um and there's a couple of you know we have a number of uh fledgling ebook stores on here here bill berry is one um started by tim coates who was the former Head of Waterstones, which was the largest uh, UK bookstore chain, and you know this is—he's entering his third year now um, to try to uh, get an international ebook store off the ground. And you know, as we report in the magazine, he has 1.3 million ebook titles on the site now. So he's really counting on 2014 to be the year that. Uh, you know, he breaks through. And then, you know, another one is Zola Books, which a lot of people will, will, will know. And um, you know, they've been at it for a little less time than um, Bill Berry. Um, and they're still working to get, um, you know, a, a large title base on the site. And hope again in 2014 that they'll start to break through and actually, you know, generate some meaningful sales. 
And I feel like saying, you know, none of these stores have, or, or businesses have really had super outstanding numbers is kind of like saying, well, none of these newborns have graduated college. I mean, they're, they're, they're still new. You know, let's give them some time. Right. Yeah. No. There's definitely uh, there's definitely some hope, uh, and that's and that's why I, I don't know. At least I know I was gratified. I guess that you know, although some of them have you know tweaked their business models a little bit, that they're they're still they're still trying. I think the the thing people will be most interested in 24 are how these three. Um, Subscription services fair, uh, Scribd, Oyster, and the one that changed its name. Uh, that that uh, uh, in title, it started life as E-Rita and changed its name in December. And you know, through these subscription plans, you know, be like as the name implies, readers can sign up for a, a fixed price and get. A certain number of titles. Well, Jim, this sounds all wonderful. It's great to have you on with these solid numbers uh, uh, from Nielsen BookScan and and uh, just uh, all the research and this year-end report. So thanks so much. I right, take care, guys. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 